Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. Is it possible for a child to be sexually molested, never get any therapy or help for that, and not end up as a sex addict or with sex issues? Well, those are two different questions, and I'll answer them both. Um, I remember Dr. Karn saying this, and I, I loved his answer. He said, and it's a difficult one to sort of get right. He said, most sex addicts have not been sexually molested, and I agree with that. I think most sex addicts learn to soothe themselves with sexual fantasy or maybe touching themselves, you know, feels good when you're little, makes you distracted. So I think we learned sexuality and fantasy as a way of making ourselves feel better. We're neglected. We're overwhelmed by a parent. We don't have anyone around. You know, we're, no one cares about us or is focused on us. Whatever the issue is, um, we learn to tolerate situations that young, young children should not probably tolerate. And we learn to tolerate by using fantasy. Um, however, there are many people who are molested who end up being sex addicts. So I would say most people who are molested in some way don't end up like this. They will, however, end up with problems with intimacy and relationships if it was never really resolved. There will be fears and trauma inside of them that cause them to act in ways and relationships that won't make sense to them, sense to them and it won't make sense to their partner because they're reacting from things that happened in the past. So to me, a sexual abuse survivor might have trouble dating, might have trouble enjoying sex without getting high. Um, they might um, uh, they might avoid uh, having sex with a partner, but they're not acting out somewhere else. So they're both problems of intimacy, but one is more, I think, fear-based through my lifespan about things that were horrible that happened to me. And more is about, I don't really even know how I ended up here, but but boy, I love sex as a means of escape. And I just think they're, they come from different places. But one more thing, I, I've worked with sexual abuse survivors in treatment at Seeking Integrity and uh, quite a bit. And I remember this one man saying, you know, I was eight years old and I was molested and I think that's how I got this. And I know that probably issues come from earlier. So I said to him, did you tell your parents? And he said, oh no, I wouldn't have told them. And I said, why? He said, well, they would have told me I did it wrong or it was my fault or they, everything was my fault. And I thought, well, that's actually the injury because the child who is harmed, molested, hit, whatever, they run to their parents if a healthy situation, say, mom, dad, I know you love me. I know you're there for me. Help me with this. They know they're not going to get blamed. They're, no, they're not going to get ignored. They know they're going to have arms wrapped around them and that family's going to make it better. And to be honest with you, if people have tremendously supportive family and who really respond to the sexual issues when someone's harmed and they listen and they talk about it and they, I don't know, the therapy is really needed because that child has learned how to, that loving people will support them through this and they can work through this. However, um, people who just sort of toss it aside. So basically what I'm saying is that I think that people who are molested often don't have environments where they can talk about it. It awful ha often had environments where they, uh, we're using fantasy as escape. And then this situation happens and then they're sort of doubly wired. Another, and I'll say one more thing about that. Um, people who are sex offenders do not harm healthy children. You will never see a sex offender go up to a really healthy, really together child and say, would you come with me for some candy? Because that child's going to say no. And they're going to say, mommy told me not to. 
but it's the vulnerable child, the, the child who's looking for adult attention, who wants somebody to give, you know, who want, who loves that adult that's just giving them something they don't get at home. That's the child is more likely to get molested because they're so attracted to all that attention and validation that they leave the pack and they end up getting harmed. But it's not the child's fault. Oh, it's never the child's right. fault. I just want to be really clear. Never, never. But they, right. but you can feel their vulnerability. You can yeah. tell that. This is the kid who's going to run scared when the other kids get angry. You know, they just or she doesn't have it inside. And someone might see that and say, well, let me take care of you. Let me support you. And then bad things happen. But thanks, Tammy, for clarifying that. Okay. The next question, as the betraying partner, as the betraying partner, do I have the right to want a minimal amount of support from my other half? I have a long way to go in recovery, but I was hoping to have a nice, oh, hang on, my phone is starting to ring. Uh, to have a nice weekend with my partner, spending time and reconnecting. Instead, she chose to spend time with her grandchildren all weekend, and I feel neglected. They are great kids, but but that time with her would have meant a lot to me. It was a trigger for me to act out, but it was a huge dis oh, it won't trigger me to act out, but it was a huge disappointment. Well, I think every spouse in the room could respond to this. Has been around for a while, but Tammy, do you want to give it a stab? Uh, I, one of the things I don't hear is how long it's been. So I'm going to kind of assume that it's been a shorter amount of time because this feels like early recovery where you're looking for your partner to step into the space. And, you know, I, I hear that you didn't act out great. I hear that you feel neglected. Hopefully you did something in recovery, but I'm going like, I tell partners, you know, Addicts are going to hate me, but I tell partners all the time, do things that are supportive for you. I honestly love that she went and did something that was not recovery oriented and that she had time with her grandkids. What a great thing for her to just have a mental health break on that. Because, you know, if the two of you are working forward and moving forward in a different way, she'll have time with you again after the weekend. So, um, so this to me, what I really read in it is... I want, I want, I want, I want, um, which is so addict. I get it. Believe me, I get it so much. But, but it's like, okay, this person deserves what they want as well. And how can I support them? And how great would it have been? Is you go have a great time with your grandkids. I'll look forward to seeing the pictures and hearing all about it. That's, that's a different way to look at it. So that's my two cents. Thoughts? Yeah, I just think this person stayed with you. They're still living with you. They're, they still talk to you. One of the things I say addicts miss out on in early recovery is humility. You know, it's like, well, I'm trying hard and I'm going to meetings and I've been in recovery and why aren't you giving me what I need? Well, when you feel safe enough and comfortable enough and are ready to, you will. And if you don't a year and a half in and we're doing everything right, then we'll have to have a discussion about how, how is it that I'm doing everything right and, not, and we're not moving forward. But that's a very different situation. So Tammy's right. If this is in the first year, and I just have a feeling it is, or it's someone who may be sober, but maybe has more work to do on themselves, or you haven't read out of the doghouse because you would understand what your job is with your partner if you read it. I mean that. Um, but the bottom line is good for, it's what Tammy said, good for her that she didn't sit in the corner and cry about how you have ruined her life. She took it upon herself to do something that made her feel good. And I want to say to you as a sex addict, 
how many times did you decide that you were going to do things that you didn't tell her anything about? And then she sat around thinking, where did he go? Why are we together? I have nothing to do. There's nobody here. So how many times have you chosen to go out and do whatever the F you wanted to without telling your partner or caring how they felt? Sorry, Tammy, I'm having a feeling. No, I, And now you're I'm saying that you're angry at your spouse for taking care of herself by seeing her grandchildren. I think that's selfish is the best way I can put I'm really glad you answered the question. I really respect. And it's not me who's angry at you. I'm sure your wife is. But I think it's not really where I would want to be at this point. I'd be wanting to be looking at as Tammy, how great that you went. I'm really glad you took care of yourself. And I went to some extra meetings this week weekend because you weren't here. That would be the answer I would give my spouse and I would follow through. Yes. And, and I hope you aren't pouting when she returns. And I'm just, just or saying. now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. Next question. I'm the betrayed partner. I am struggling with trust and intimacy simultaneously. It has only been about four months of my essay husband doing the recovery work, going to therapy, support groups, and 12-step essay groups weekly. I feel a desire to be close to him, but I'm so scared of being hurt again. We haven't had disclosure yet because of my therapist says I'm not ready, probably in about six weeks out. How do I trust him even if he is doing the right things? I do see changes in his behavior. That's a good sign, so. Well, I, I think this is very early again. You know, I, I think, you know, how do I say this? If I broke a bone, you know, you might expect in four to six or maybe being a little older, maybe eight to 12 weeks, it's going to get better. And I'm going to feel better as a partner. But you're feeling better. You should feel scared to be hurt again. It's only been four months. And yes, you desire closeness. Of course you want it. But I would ask you, as I ask every partner, how close do you want to get with someone you don't trust? You know, and if it were me, I don't think this person would still would be sleeping in my bed yet. <laughs> They'd be sleeping in the other room. So there's nothing wrong with wanting what you had, wanting what you thought you had, um, wanting to have the connection that you need, because you will feel really supported by that as you have in the past. But this isn't someone who can support you right now because they have betrayed you. So and also I see you haven't had disclosure. And so, by the way, I, I would do it a little differently. I mean, I, I don't know how long you've been waiting. Um, but you know, this question about, I don't know who your therapist or any of it, but when you say, because my therapist says I'm not ready, I wonder if there's a piece of this in that, like, you know, one of the things that I often talk once in a while, I'll work with a couple cause I do consultations, um, online and once a work while I'll work with a couple that says, you know, other than this sex thing and this cheating, everything else is great. Everything else is wonderful. We've been doing as well as we have in the beginning. And I, except for this, and I think something's missing there. And what it is, is the partner's rage, the partner's furious, the partner's, I hate you, because on some level, that partner so desires to maintain the closeness, and they so don't want to be angry and hurt, who does, that it's easier to feel like, oh, I just want us to be close to again, than to really sit back and say, I want to kill you. And, and I feel alone since you did this. And I feel alone being angry at you because you're the one I used to turn to as my best friend. And now I can't do that anymore. And I'm so sorry that you can't, but that is the consequence of what this person has done to you. And trusting is you're right about behavior, doing the right things, but it's over like a year, you know, and I would not feel comfortable getting close to someone who betrayed me this degree for six or eight months. That doesn't mean we don't talk news, weather, and sports, that doesn't, you know, we, that doesn't mean you don't ask about recovery or I talk about it. it, doesn't mean we don't 
inch our way into being closer. But this move from you ruined my life and I, I'm, I can't believe you did this and I never thought you would hurt me to let's be closer is I think a longer, a quite a bit longer period than four months. And I'm glad someone asked this question, Tammy, because you know I often hear from the addicts, how do I get closer to her? How do I make this work? I'm the addict. I ruined their life. Why, you know, when are they going to get over this? But we don't always hear, maybe you do more than me, but we don't always hear this question from partners, which is, I love that person. I, they're my friend. I want to be close to them. And can we just kind of, and, and they've been sober for three or four months. So let's just kind of move aside and get close again. And I don't know if Tammy would agree, but I think I think there's a lot more work that the partner has to done, do in terms of getting their anger and their disappointment and sense of betrayal before you can move forward with disclosure. Um, Tammy, what do you think? Well, and I agree. What I really love hearing, though, is all the things that he's doing and that you have a good therapist who's got your back. What I hear is your therapist is going, you know, I want you to be in a supported place to be able to do this and do this right. But yeah, as far as I'm struggling with trust and intimacy, you know, uh, th that would be completely understandable. How, how could you not? You know, I don't know how long you've been together, but often it's years, you know, or decades, you know, together. And then all of a sudden, oh, he's been doing really good for four months. So I should, I should feel differently. I should trust him. No, not, no, 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 no. <laughs> he's, he's, he needs to keep doing those things to show you that he's trustworthy. And it, it is a process. It's a journey. And, you know, and, and it isn't, you know, you're going to magically arrive at, you know, at the rainbow, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it, it's just a process. And, and every, you know, every piece of the path, first of all, has support along the way. So there's always, you know, people, to support you but also mm -hmm. you'll you'll start seeing oh yeah look at he's doing that oh i'm feeling like oh i can trust that you know not necessarily sex but you know i can trust that you know when he says he's going to pick up the kids you know from daycare he's going to really do it great you know i mean whatever it is you'll start seeing those things and we talk often on this that actions you know that's really where it's at words are meaningless actions are you know are really where it's at so so trust yourself trust your therapist to help guide the process and be okay with like not being okay. It's like, yeah, you're, you don't trust them. You have intimacy. Of course your intimacy has been rocked. So okay. I want to say this is part of what hurts every partner is now I can't turn to you. And now I can't, now I'm missing my biggest piece of support. This is why we run all these free support groups. This is why, because every partner feels like who, first of all, I, can't, I don't want to tell my mother. I don't want to tell my neighbor. I don't want to tell my pastor. It's not like you're saying, even these days, my, my spouse has a drinking problem. You're saying they have a sex problem. Lord knows what people are going to think. So who do you talk to for support? You probably need a lot of support. Um, there are places you can get it, but not the place you want to get it, which is um, other people are going through what you're going through who can help set you right and support you about a timeline around all this. And that's we have a number of partners groups, right, Tammy? Yes. Uh, a bunch of them. Okay. Yes, on sexandrelationshiphealing.com. But I, I'm also going, I know you don't trust your gut anymore because like that's been rocked, but but start trusting that like you'll know when it's the right time. You know, I mean, I, I really believe that you'll know. So, 
Okay, next question. Betrayed partner here, ex-husband and current partner are both essays. Current partner is in recovery. Found hardcore porn on my 10-year-old daughter's computer, struggling with how to mm. talk about it and press upon her that this stuff is addictive and dangerous to her brain without disclosing anything about the essay in the family and without turning it into a forbidden fruit suggestions. That's a great and challenging question. Well, I guess my first question is who put the hardcore porn on there? Because it may not have been your 10-year-old daughter. It may have been someone you're, you're involved with. Your ex-husband has been somebody who thought, thought it was easier to use your daughter's computer than use theirs because maybe they wouldn't get caught. That, that's one of the, I don't know whether you're living together or not, but that's, there is a movie called Men, Women, and Children, which is worth a, a sight, Men, Women, and Children. And one of the scenes is, is it in it is Adam Sandler, who does not want to get caught by his wife looking at porn. So he goes in his son's room and uses the porn because he figures that, you know, she won't find it there. And of course, the child does. So, um, and, and I, you know, there are many ways I'd like to talk about this, but I don't know these people. And so I don't want to say anything that might be too strong or, or that I you know, wouldn't understand how to say to you. I will say that this, I would not say to a 10 year old, this is addictive and it's dangerous for your brain. I don't think that, uh, you know, if you told me cigarettes were bad for me, I never really wanted to stop. If you told me chocolate chip cookies were bad for me, I never wanted to stop because they were pleasurable. I needed other reasons to stop other than, you know, this is not good for you. As much as a parent, you might feel that way. I would want to understand it. How did they get there? What are they doing with it? How often, how does it make them feel? I think, you know, and then I would absolutely take the therapy. I wouldn't attempt to, as much as you want to like, you know, handle all things as you can as a parent. This is really something that a child therapist, a child therapist needs to work on. We have ways, I'm not one, of speaking to a nine-year-old, of speaking to a seven-year-old, speaking to, because we are trained, developmental child therapists are trained to have the way have a similar way of language that a two-year-old is a fire. So, and also Europe's so upset about this. So if it were me, you know, I would probably work on a neutral party who can help you figure this out. And the other thing is that um, kind of what you asked, um, if she did this, this is her sexuality. And we are sexual beings at four and at 14 and 54, and it's just different. And so if this child is looking at sexual images and you go in there and say, what are you doing? How could you be doing this? What's wrong with this? It may feel right to you, but you're, that's their sexuality. I mean, that's a very intimate, personal, sometimes scary part of us. And I, while I might want to say something like, I'm really concerned about this, I think we need to talk about this. Let's talk to someone. I wouldn't um, get angry, even though you may feel angry. In fact, when I teach parents and teachers, I do trainings about this. And I've heard others say this. The first thing as a parent, when you see porn on your child's computer or whatever that you need to do is walk away and take a breath and go talk to your pastor or a therapist. In other words, you don't want to come in there charging like an elephant. You want to really be thoughtful about how you want to talk to that child, just as you would about any concerning issue. So I see a thoughtful parent here, and I really encourage you to take a thoughtful uh, path with this, even though you probably want to throw the computer out the window. Yeah, it, the be curious came to mind of like, how did this get here? What does this mean to you? The, all, all of those type of things. And the, you know, the more neutral, just like Dr. Rob was saying, the more neutral you can be, um, I, I think will be the most useful for you and for her. So go ahead. I'm sorry to mean to jump on that, Tammy, but of course I thought of this. You don't have to make her 
evil, bad, how could you do this to put a filter on our computer? You know, to put, a, to put devices on the computer, you can say, you know, I don't think that's good for you. And I am not, you know, we're going to block you from that. And let's go talk to somebody who can help us understand what that meant and, and what, how it might have affected you. And none of it with a raised voice. You're protecting your child by putting a filter on there. You're supporting your child by going to see a professional. Um, I think that's what you need to do. Um, I don't, I would not be thinking about, is it going to turn to an addict, turn her into an addict at 25? I would deal with what's going on right now, your feelings about it, what support you need and how to support your child and not being uh, introduced these images anymore. And there's information about filters and blockers on sexandrelationshiphealing.com under the resource tab. Okay. Next question. Partner has ED as a result of compulsive masturbation and porn. What are the chances he regains his sexual ability if he abstains from masturbation and works his program to recover? Well, there's a lot I don't know here because uh, I guess I'll just put it this way. Um, I, erectile dysfunction related to m- compulsive masturbation and porn, if that's all that's going on, should probably go away in a month or two. Um, the brain becomes conditioned to that as a meanings, means of stimulation. So I'm so used to these intense images that roll after one after another that just just being with one person doesn't arouse me anymore or didn't but when i put all that intensity away the brain pretty quickly turns more healthy brains turn back to connection relationship and relationship sexuality um i i don't hear anything about addiction here uh, well maybe works his program to recover um i think sex I think that part of it comes back fairly quickly because that is really almost biological on some level. Um, the two questions are, has he actually stopped? Because that would be really, really important. And number two, um, I, don't, I don't think working a program necessarily, anyway, Tammy, what do you think about this? I'll throw it back to you. Uh, so going and getting medical, uh, go see if there's right. a you know, medical issue for ongoing if it's after Thank a you. certain period of time, because it should theoretically come back it also depends on the age of the person you know right a 20 age, year old's gonna you, have a, <laughs> an easier time of having that return than somebody more our age so um so i think there's lots of of unanswered things here but but i think many people you know can re-engage if they're healthy and they have a program or changing the focus it won't be as exciting it's one of those things dr rob talks about this all the time though you know if it's the intensity of a zillion images and you know non-stop and now it's the same like as dr rob says it's the same but i've seen for 20 years well you know it's not the same thing as you know it's not the same thing so yeah it it's different tammy that just doesn't sound the same coming from you as it does i know i don't know know. why um (laughs) let me say one more thing about regains his sexual ability um, there may be some intact sexual ability, but he's the intimacy thing comes up. So many of us stop acting out and then we turn to our partners and we have trouble being sexual. We have trouble being intimate. We struggle with, you know, it, it is part of the issue for us is connecting intimately, including sex on some level, unless we're in, you know, romance land. So you might consider that there also might be some underlying intimacy problems there that come up once the porn stops that you as a couple might need to look at, um, yeah, I mean, this is an open question. There might be many different answers to this one. So the next question, after two years of slow trickle discovery and botched recovery attempts, my SA husband has been sober for about nine months, many of those during our in-house separation. We have recently started sleeping in the same bed and resumed sex. 
do sex addicts ever get enough sex? Well, I'm not sure. So I recently worked with someone who was very angry at his partner because she wasn't having more sex with him. And he felt like, you know, why can't I get it every day or three times a day or whatever? You know, that's what being married is. And so um, and we had to, you know, talk to him about that because he had a very skewed view of sexuality because that's what addicts do. We have sex addicts. We have skewed view. So, um, you know, if you're feeling like uh, we're in the same bed and now I'm being asked to have sex, you know, for hours, three times a day, and you know, if you're feeling pressured or like it's too much, then that's something to discuss because everybody has their own level of enjoying sexuality and it may not match with their partner and that's something you need to negotiate. But I've also had partners say, I feel like he or she turned from the porn and the affair to me, and now I'm the thing they're using for sex. And so part of it, I think, is do you feel connected? Do you feel like sex is coming out of a connection, or is it just more let's get have sex? Um, you, uh, you partners are pretty aware. If you feel like we're distancing, we're not there, we're really thinking about someone else while we're being sexual with you, I'm not saying it's absolutely true, but it is certainly a time to stop and say, well, actually, let me say this. Sex is a little too serious in my mind for a lot of us. Uh, one of the first things I learned in this field was that it's okay to laugh during sex. It's okay to say, wait, this isn't working. Let's try something else. I think, I don't mean to say it this way, but some of us are like, I got to just get through this, you know, if you're not enjoying it or whatever it is. And I think what I hear is a lot more communication would be really understand. So you can understand where the sex is coming from and what it means for this person, your spouse. And so that, you know, do we ever get enough sex? That's like, it's like saying, does an alcoholic ever, well, that's not right. Yeah. Does an alcoholic ever, no, that's not right. Does someone with an eating disorder ever get to enough food. No, someone who has an eating disorder never gets enough food because they need to eat. But do they have to eat addictively? You know, so do we ever get enough sex? No, I mean, sex is healthy and we should have sex. And But enough to satisfy what our addiction asked us to satisfy. No, that's not what partner sexuality is. And I don't know if that was confusing, but that's hopefully that came across. Well, it, what, one of the things I thought about is if if it depends on what the focus is. You know, we talk about sensate focused and lots of other things. It's about the intimacy. It's not about sex. It's not about sex and just getting off and body parts and everything else. So, so even if he's been sober nine months, I'd be, I'd be wondering, uh, you know, a little bit about that. So, okay. So I need you to answer this one. What can yeah, hold? I, I, I okay. What can hold a sex addict from gaining traction in his recovery when he's been with a CSAT twelve step and meeting a sponsor for five years he cannot get past three mm -hmm. to four months without slipping or relapsing the lies continue even when he swore on our son's bible he was solid in his bottom lines but found him googling outside of covenant eyes that is on his work computer searching for naked bodies to fantasize with i can never gain traction with trust with him he blames me that i get anxious because my gut is always telling me something is off and when i verify i'm right Need, oh, when I verify, I'm right. I'm needless to say, he ended the marriage recently blaming me. Oh. So. Well, that's, wow. I was all along with this until the last sentence. Um, because, I mean, there's a number of things going on here. If I, if I was committed to working on my marriage, I would work on my marriage. And I don't care how angry you were, or how disappointed you were, or how hard it was. I mean, this is one of the reasons I wrote out of the doghouse, out of the doghouse. It says consistently through that book, you have a lot of work to do. You have a lot of making up to do. You have a lot of trauma and betrayal to clear up. And I go through how. 
But every couple of chapters I write, but if you don't want to do this, if you don't want to do the work of healing with your partner, no, no harm. I mean, you're going to cause harm when you separate, but no one's making you make up with this person. And, and you know, it may well be that, I, I guess there's one, like there's an entire paragraph about how do I know and when is he going to and how do I gain trust? And, and then the last sentence says the marriage has ended. So it's confusing me why you would worry about what is going on in his recovery if he isn't with you anymore. I understand the feeling and the desire to want to um, help, or maybe he's a father of your children. You want to make sure he's okay with it, you know, whatever that is. But the reality is if he leaves you, it's his life. And he doesn't answer, have to answer. Sorry, ladies and gentlemen, he doesn't have to answer to you. He can do whatever he wants. He, he can look at all the porn he wants. He can see all the people he wants, because if someone leaves you, they can run their own their own lives. So what I'm concerned about is how much this partner is wanting the person to get well. And what I wonder about is, do you think maybe if they got well, they wouldn't they would return to the marriage? Because I don't think that's true. If they if they were going to get well, if, if getting well was part of the returning to marriage, they would have fought to get well for the marriage. And this looks like somebody who, honestly, I think there's more going on with this person. Let me say it this way. I rarely, rarely see long-term committed partnerships break up over this. I would say, at least to the couples I've worked with, maybe 85 or 90% who've been together 15 or 20 years, they don't break up because as horrible as this has been, they have other things in their life like kids and family and church and home and that are equally important to them. And so they ride on, they ride this out based on their history of connection and their history. New couples, not so much uh, because they don't have as much time together and it's easier to walk away. So if you've had a reasonably long-term marriage and if this person has walked away from you, that was his intention. There was nothing that you could have done or would have done or he could have done to keep this relationship together. And I'm so, so sorry, you know, cause he left you in a big hole with no way out of your own, except to say, what did I do wrong? And what's wrong with me? And, and none of that is true, but he does get to leave. Not, maybe not blaming you. That's an easy way out for him to blame you. And that is his ticket out is it's all her fault, but he's not going to grow. He's not going to change. And he's not going to become the person that all of the rest of your notes says you want him to be because he's running away and he will keep running away. Um, 42 years of marriage. Yeah. Let me end with one thing, Tammy, if that's okay, unless you want to, did you want to say oh, something no, about that No, one? please, please. No, go on. Yeah. It's something that I say all the time in treatment. I say it here, but I'm going to say it again. Um, healthy people grow up in a home. They have a good home. They leave home to become their own person and, you know, it find themselves in the world. And then they create a new home with new people and they celebrate and enjoy that home. That's not what addicts do. We grow up in a home that's difficult, has challenges, whatever it is. We kind of run away from there as fast as we can. And then like everyone else, we want to create a home and we want to find that stability. And we do. And then we run from that. So the most important word to me in the English language is the word home, H-O-M-E. It's what it's all about. It's the foundation of our lives. And someone who's still running away from home after 42 years of marriage, I am so, so sorry. Um, I just think that person has a lot of a world of trouble that I might want to actually get away from. And I'm sorry. Tammy, that's a sad note no, to end on. But. I know. I was like, me too. But yeah. And, and I hope you find support and peace with, you know, it, it isn't you it's devastating, but, but I'm with Dr. Rob. There's, you know, there's nothing that you're, you could have done in any of that 
you know, how could you trust him when he keeps relapsing in line, you know? And and I want to put that in another context for you. If this person was returning to drinking over and over again, they just chose the alcohol over you, or they chose the drug addiction over you, I don't think you'd feel the same way. I think you'd say, wow, this is really sad that this person chose this awful lifestyle over the home that we've created. But you'd say, oh, well, they're an alcoholic. I mean, it would still be painful, but sometimes alcoholics make that choice. They choose the alcohol over, you know, what they, you know. And so in a way, I don't look at this as any different. It's so not about you. This person is choosing their illness over the health that a family can bring. If it was five years together, no, but 40 something years together, yeah, they are running away from home. Well, and even with all the things, those are, those can be checking boxes. So right now the record right. is uh, for a guy that came to our treatment program, he'd been lying to his therapist for 11 years. I, I, I hope nobody breaks that record. That was, I mean, what a waste, you know? Uh, but I know lots of people who go to 12 step and have a sponsor and, and they're lying to their sponsor. Some of them sponsor other people and they're lying to every, I mean, they're lying to themselves and lying to everybody else. So, so checking off the boxes of, yeah, I'm doing these right things. It doesn't mean that he changed, you know, he's, he's lying on your son's Bible, which, you know, presumably should have been a meaningful thing for all of you. And he still did it. So, so, so he sounds like a very, um, troubled, sad and wounded person. And, um, and, but I'm sorry, because like, that's a long time and, you know, kids, probably grandkids. So I'm sorry. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.